Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you very much for allowing me to come and preach to you. I am very much looking forward to it. This is a task that I take very seriously. There's only one job in the whole world where the Bible says that if you teach, you may incur stricter judgment. So it's with fear and trepidation that I stand behind this sacred wooden desk and open up the true, inerrant, inspired, infallible word of the living God. So with that said, please turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12. I'm a man under authority, and as I was asked to come and preach today, I asked, do I, pre- do, do I preach whatever I want, or would you like me to preach something that would serve you best? And I was given the, the assignment to preach to you Romans 12, verses 3 to 8. Romans 12, verses 3 to 8. The title of the message this morning is The Keys to Faithful Christian Ministry. Let's begin by reading the text. Romans 12, I will begin reading in verse 1 and read through verse 8. Romans 12, verse 1. This is God's word. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect." For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Father, I pray for your spirit now to open our hearts and our ears to receive the word of God. May the truth spoken today sanctify us and challenge us and cause us to be conformed to your image more and more. In Jesus' name, amen. A few months ago, I came across something on the internet, an article called the job description for the perfect pastor. Now, pastors Matt and Kyle may appreciate this. Here here, here it goes. There, There are 25 characteristics for the perfect pastor. But for the sake of time, I'm going to give you my top 12. Number one, the pastor preaches exactly 10 minutes. Number two, He condemns sin roundly, but never hurts anyone's feelings. 
Number three, he works from 8 a.m. until midnight and is also the church janitor. (laughs) Sound familiar? Number four, the perfect pastor makes a whopping 40 bucks a week, wears good clothes, drives a good car, buys good books, and donates $30 a week. (laughs) This is my favorite. He is 29 years old with 40 years of experience. He never forgets a name and spends most of his time praying to God. He also knows when somebody is sick and needs visitation, even when no one tells him about it. He loves to spend time with his family, but the perfect pastor has no problem with you dropping in unexpectedly. Number nine, he remembers everyone's birthday and, of course, anniversaries as well. Number ten, he makes 15 home visits a day and is always in his office to be handy when needed. Number 11, the perfect pastor has time for all the church councils and all of its committee meetings. And number 12, he never misses a meeting of any church organization and is always busy evangelizing the unchurched. Now, it's it's satire. But why is typically satire so funny? It's because there's a grain of truth in it, isn't there? Sadly, a lot of Christians believe that the pastor or pastors are to be doing all of the ministry. That everything falls on him or them. But I'm sure you would agree that that way of thinking, that theology is antithetical. It is diametrically opposed to what the Bible teaches about Christian ministry. Amen? Here's the gospel truth. All of you saints are called by God to be lifelong ministers. A minister is not a professional licensed clergyman, to be clear. A a minister is also not an elected public official, kind of like how uh, the UK uses the term prime minister. Some people may think of the term minister and think politician or clergyman, but that is not how the Bible uses the term minister. In a biblical sense, minister simply refers to a Christian who serves the church of Jesus Christ. And are you not a minister? Well, according to Romans 12, verses 3 to 8, you are. You're a minister. You are to be set apart for the purpose of dedicating your life to the faithful service of our master in a specific way, possessing the right attitude within the confines of the local church. That's the main point today. If you are to function as a faithful minister, as God intends, there are three keys. Three keys to having a successful, lifelong ministry as a Christian. And just to be clear, when I, when, I, when I say successful, I don't mean it in worldly terms. I think we can define successful ministry in a biblical sense as faithful. Faithful. There are three keys which we will unpack today. 
But before we parachute into Romans 12, uh, please allow me to review very briefly uh, the background and context. I think it's probably been a while since you heard a message from Romans, right? So, so let, me, let me remind you that, that the book of Romans is a very heavy doctrinal letter. It's full of robust theology. In it, we read about the, the condemnation of unbelievers, We read about the salvation of sinners, the sanctification of saints, the restoration of God's covenant people, Israel. But what ties all of these wonderful doctrines together is the doctrine of sola fide. And I know you guys know what that means, don't you? Because, I know this because last night, when I was trying to figure out how long do I have to preach, I went back and I looked at your sermon archives. And your pastor, God bless him, he taught you this. I knew this is a like-minded church when I saw that. But not only this, I want to say, brother, I haven't met you yet, but thank you for the music we just sung. It was so refreshing, wasn't it, to hear those rich theological hymns, because that's not common these days, is it? So we, we just, I like, that last hymn we sung, it was great. That's my new favorite hymn, Oh, Sweet Justified, Right? That is, the, that is the main theme of Romans, do, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Uh, listen to Romans 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified. 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Chapter 4, verse 5, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted reckoned, credited to him as righteousness. And there's Romans 5, verse 1. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace. Indicative. Statement of truth. With God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Most of you probably know that the Apostle Paul, the, formal, the, the, the former Saul, the Jewish terrorist, whom was converted on his way to Damascus, is writing this letter. He's writing while in Corinth to the universal church in Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. The year was around 56 AD, which was near the end of his third missionary journey, so Paul has had some miles under his feet at this time. He's endured persecution. He's endured much ministry. He is writing to newly converted believers, immature, infant believers who are in desperate need of gospel truth. That's precisely what he lays out for them in chapters 1 through 11. And then when we get to chapters 12 and following, It's all about the implications of the doctrine, right? You see that if you get to know me, you'll know that I I am a man who loves doctrine and theology. But I always aim to do what John Calvin said. Theology is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of life. You have the heavy doctrine which we need. We need the meat, but then the meat is intended to be processed and then give us energy to do the work of the ministry. So there are implications of the doctrine of justification. You know what it is? 
It's Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. When you, after you become justified and have peace with God, then you, you dedicate your life to him in spiritual service. Present tense, it doesn't stop. In the Christian life, there is no such thing as retirement. You know, we may get burned out once in a while. We may need a rest, and that's great. That's, that's, that's fine. But this idea among older saints I'm just going to get in my RV and go live on the beach for the rest of my life? No, no. You, you live your whole life dedicated to spiritual service to our master. So you have to understand that immediate context here of verses 3 to 8. You cannot have Romans uh, 12 verses 3 to 8 without understanding and obeying Romans 12, 1 and 2. If you have not presented your bodies as a living sacrifice, then there cannot be any faithful, effective, successful Christian ministry because without a genuine commitment to Christ, any service would be done with the wrong motive, with no joy, and very little fruit, if any. So if you have not dedicated your life to Christ earnestly from the heart, you need to. You need to. Today. For those of us who have obeyed the call of Romans 12, 1 and 2, let us focus on what we can call the keys to having a successful lifelong ministry. First, in verse 3, own your weakness. Look at verse 3. For, through the grace given to me, Paul's talking about his own uh, gift of apostleship that was a grace given to him, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. In other words, what Paul is saying, Christian, don't think that you have the ability to do everything. You can't because you're not perfect. There's no such thing as the perfect pastor. There's no such thing as the perfect Christian. You can't do it all. You have limitations, you have weaknesses, and to think otherwise is to think too highly of yourself, which is also called pride. And listen to this, would you agree that we are never more like Satan when we are prideful? So if you think you're the next Charles Haddon Spurgeon, but you're not, own it. If you want to be a preacher, you think you want to be a preacher, but you can't stand up here and articulate the word of truth with conviction and authority, brother, that's okay. You have other gifts. Put off the pride, put on humility, is what Paul is saying. On the, on, on the other hand, have sound judgment. Sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Some translations say sober judgment, but I really think the NAS, I, I typically preach from the New American Standard Version. I was taught in seminary, pick what Bible version you're going to preach from and stick with it. So, so I have this really nice new preacher's Bible that I got from the Shepherd's Conference a couple years ago. So, 
So I like the NAS, and, and this, this is what the NAS says. Sound. I think sound is better because when you think of the word sober, how many of you automatically think of the opposite of being drunk? Right? When you think sober, you think somebody who's just really serious, somebody who's sober-minded, somebody who's stoic. Paul's not talking about being sober-minded. He's not talking about being stoic and really serious. He's talking about getting your thinking right. You can be serious and have wrong thinking. There's a lot of weighty theology out there that's serious, but it's deadly. So how do you ought to think of yourself? Examine the measure of faith God has allotted to you and judge yourself appropriately. That is to say, do an honest assessment of what your weaknesses are and own them. If you think you're, excuse me, if, if, if you know you're not a gifted teacher or preacher or, or leader, then, then don't force the issue. To force it is to think too highly of yourself. The second key to having a successful lifelong ministry is to own your uniqueness. Own your uniqueness. In verse 4, Paul goes on to say, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Paul here uses the profound uniqueness of the human anatomy as an illustration to make a very crucial point. Just as the body has many different parts, each having a unique function, so does the body of Christ, the church. In order for the physical body to function fully as God designed, all parts must fulfill its intended purpose or else the body is severely hindered, isn't it? If the church does not have anyone using their gifts, the church is likewise incapacitated. For example, if a man can't speak, he's disabled because he can't communicate. If a church has no active and gifted preachers or teachers, it will be void of knowledge. What do we read in Hosea? My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Right? Shepherds after God's own heart, they feed the sheep the spiritual milk of the word. If a man can't walk, he's immobilized. If a church has no evangelists or disciple makers, it will be a lukewarm church, consumed with themselves, and it will die. How many of you have read a blog article or something about the astronomical percentage of churches that are dying? And a lot of them die because the leadership and, and the older saints did not pour into the young people or they didn't evangelize, they didn't do outreach, they didn't, they didn't do, the, do what they were supposed to do. They didn't obey 2 Timothy 2.2 2, to entrust these things to faithful men who were then in turn entrust to the next generation. If a man has no arms or legs especially in New Testament times, he was left destitute. 
So it couldn't work. And if a church has no one to do deacon work, take care of the widows and orphans, take care of those who are down and out, then the needy people will starve. They'll leave. So you see, just as the body has unique parts, all functioning in a different way, so does the local church. You all possess unique, diverse gifts given to you by God as a stewardship. Now going back to my intro about the perfect pastor, verses 4 and 5 provides the biblical evidence that the pastor cannot, should not, do even the bulk of the ministry. You know, the work of preaching is, 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 is one aspect of, of, of Christian life, is Christian ministry, right? Paul here explicitly states that every believer has a function. And I must say it this way as well, that not to be a spectator or a consumer. Have you guys ever read the book? I think it's by Jerry Bridges, Respectable Sins. Is that true? How many of you read that book? Respectable Sins. Now, if I was asked to write a sequel to that book, you know what number one would be in that book? Christian consumerism. Church hopping. Because of the milky theology in the church today, Christians believe they're spectators. Not members of the body, but spectators, and that's not right. The mouth and the head have their function, the arms and the legs, and so on. So which one are you? Do you know where you fit in? Do you know your giftedness? Do you know how you ought to be functioning as a member in this church? You say, hey, Heitman, I don't know. Maybe I thought I knew. Well, if you're asking that question... I have good news for you. We are going to go to Paul in the next few verses, and he is going to tell us what the spiritual gifts are. And with the time I have left, I want to do my best to help you understand these more and perhaps help you identify or recognize where you could be functioning in this local church. So I pray that this will be practical for you. I pray that this will be sanctifying for you. That leads us to the third key to having a successful, lifelong ministry. Own your giftedness. Verses 6 through 8. In verse 6, Paul says, since we have gifts. Stop right there. There's another indicative statement. It is a matter of truth. It's a statement of fact. It's a present reality. You have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. There are seven here. There are seven spiritual gifts listed here. Now, I don't have time uh, 
John MacArthur took three hours to go through this text, and I don't have three hours with you. So if, if this piques your interest, if it kind of stirs the heart, I would encourage you to ask one of your pastors of some good resources to continue to dive into this, or a good systematic theology book if you have one. But before we get to these seven gifts, please, please let me lay out a few clarifications. Number one, at the outset, we have to understand that we are all responsible to form these tasks in some capacity to some degree. Case in point, we are all commanded to give, right? We'll get to that in a little bit later. But we're all commanded to give, but so, some of you, dear saints, have the gift of giving. We are all responsible to teach, right? The Great Commission. Go therefore, as you are going, make disciples, teaching and baptizing. So all of us have to teach God's word in some way, in some context. But then there are some who have the gift of teaching and preaching. That leads me to the next clarification. You may read this text and conclude that you have a combination of these gifts, which would be common. I could say with certainty, well pretty much almost certain, that I have the gift of preaching, teaching, leading, and benevolence. Mercy. I'll explain why in a little bit. It may be the same as well for you. You may have the gift of exhortation and leadership. Praise the Lord. Now, again, the, the, the last clarification I'd like to make before we dive in here to the first gift is that the parallel passage is 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. However, even though Paul wrote both the letters to the Corinthians and Romans, each, each list slightly differs. In Romans 12, we do not find the gifts such as knowledge, wisdom, faith, and discernment. We also do not find the temporary sign gifts of tongues, healing, and miracles. Those are the temporary gifts that were active during the apostolic age and ceased with the closing of the canon and the close of the apostolic age. Now, why does Paul not mention those gifts in Romans? Well, I, simply put, it, it's because different churches require different instruction. And in and, and Corinthians, if you read the background of Corinthians, uh, the city of Corinth was a very vile, debauched, pagan society. So, so, so these, these gifts were being, much like they are today in the charismatic movement, abused. And so Paul kind of set them straight. Corinthians is a very polemical book. Polemical meaning corrective. Paul had to correct their theology and their morality. Here, Paul is just instructing. He's not really correcting them. So, so that's why I believe we don't see some of the gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, okay? Now, let's get to the first one, preaching. The first spiritual gift is preaching. If prophecy, Paul says, according to the portion of faith. Now, you've noticed, why do you call prophecy preaching? Well, I'm going to explain why. In the context here, I don't think Paul is talking about the ability to predict the future or to give new revelation. The word simply means Speaking forth. During the time of Paul and the apostles, it could have meant delivering revelatory information in the Corinthian sense, 
But in this context, Paul is not referring to that because there is no discussion at all anywhere in the book about sign gifts. Here, Paul is referring to the public skill of proclaiming God's word, a.k.a. preaching, heralding, proclaiming. 1 Corinthians 14.3 says, But the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. Speaking gift. Now, to dial it even further down, many would ask, what is the difference between preaching and teaching? That's a good question, right? Have you had this discussion before? Well, I'll get to teaching a little bit later, but, but you, you guys have heard of the, the doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones? You guys ever heard of him? You, you should really look him up and read some of his writings. He, he is one of the most amazing preachers in church history. The Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he simply said, preaching is, quote, logic on fire. One of my professors and mentors, Dr. Stephen J. Lawson, he says, preaching gets to the you. That's how he leans over the pulpit, he says, gets to the you. You must do something. You must respond. You must repent and believe. Preaching gets to the you. I like that. Additionally, we could say that preaching engages the mind and motivates the will. Preaching is the passionate, emotional, heartfelt, urgent, authoritative reiteration of God's word. So some may ask, how do I know if I have this gift of preaching? First of all, I would say that there's an inward burn inside a man's heart to deliver God's word. Inward, not outward. If you're being externally compelled to preach, don't preach. Secondly, there's a courage not to taint the message for fear of man. You know, some of the things I've already said, I'm tempted to be afraid. Because I don't don't want you to not like me. I don't, I don't want you to criticize me. But, but I've, I've been very careful not to say anything inaccurate. Thirdly, if you're called to preach, you have the ability to make the message clear so hearers can understand and respond rightly. Now, we don't have time, but, but, but uh, I think the best biblical illustration of a Powerful sermon is, is Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2. Whenever I read that sermon, I feel like I'm, I'm, in the, I'm on the football team in the locker room and the coach has given us the, the pep talk and everybody's getting riled up and we're, you know, that's how I feel when I read Peter's sermon. Because after being terrified of a little girl... He sees the risen Christ and he gets up before thousands of men and he says, listen to my words. Jesus Christ, whom God appointed beforehand to be nailed to a cross, you did it at the hands of godless men. You did it. 
Can you imagine the confidence and boldness and courage it took to do that? Preachers have it pretty easy today in America. I don't have to worry about stones, hopefully. (laughs) I don't have to worry about pieces of dead cat getting thrown at me like George Whitfield did. Oh, but Peter, he was risking his neck every time he stood up and preached the gospel. Do you remember? I'm already going over time, I'm sorry. You guys get a free Dairy Queen later, so you'll you'll forgive me. (laughs) Do you remember at the end of, of Peter's sermon how the people responded? I, I believe the text says that they were cut to the heart, right? And they said, what must we do? I want you at the end of a sermon to say, Pastor, what do I do now? Let's move on. The second gift that Paul lists here is the gift of supporting. In verse 7, he says, if service, serving. You know that, what that word service is in the original? It's diakonos from which we get the word deacon. Do you know a deacon, it simply means servant. A table waiter, a minister. It's the same as the gift of helps in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28. It applies to meeting practical needs. These are the godly men and women who love working behind the scenes. God bless you, men and women. God bless you. True servants are some of the most humble people in the church. They're content with being unseen. They're content with the menial tasks, and they do it with joy because they're serving the Lord. It could be in the form of making a meal, setting up tables, running the soundboard, mowing the grass, giving a ride to someone to church, etc. I remember the first time I experienced as a new Christian Somebody with the gift of service. My precious daughter, Annie, Annie Banani, she was about three months old, and my wife was still recovering, and we had just joined this new church, and all of a sudden, this kind, sweet lady from our church knocks at the door, we open it, and she has a meal for us. That was 10 years ago, and I still remember that. God bless that woman. She has the gift of service. Many of you do too. The third gift that Paul lists is the gift of teaching. Gift of teaching. He who teaches in his teaching. The word doctrine is right from this word. It's the ability to systematize and interpret and explain Scripture in a clear, understandable way. Elders. Any elders in here? Where are the elders? Don't be shy. They're not here. Elders must have this gift. Must have. It's non-negotiable. Because 1 Timothy 3 says an elder must be apt to teach. Deacons don't have to, but they can. Christians, you don't have to have the gift of teaching, but elders must. It's essential for elders. In fact, an elder doesn't even have to have the gift of preaching because it's not in Scripture. Because that's part of shepherding. It's a, it's a key aspect of shepherding is to teach the flock. And so I'll be so bold to say if, 
if you don't have the gift of teaching, if you are not skilled at interpreting and explaining God's word and you don't want to do that, then, then, then be content and be joyful with being a deacon. Praise the Lord for deacons. I think even though for us who have a very high view of preaching, which we should, sometimes we can elevate it above service. Sometimes we can elevate it above teaching. But that's not biblical. If you're a servant, fulfilling the official office of deacon or not, your work is just as important as mine. Amen? Fourth, I would say counseling, the gift of counseling. You could call it something else, but it's exhortation. Now, what's interesting about this word is is, is that it's derived from the word parakaleo. Para, meaning beside, and kaleo, to call. Jesus himself calls the Holy Spirit what? The paraclete in John 14. What does the Holy Spirit do? He helps us. He convicts us. He encourages us. He strengthens us. He teaches us. That is what a counselor does. He is a paraclete. He comes along the side and exhorts somebody. He helps a brother or sister by admonishing and correcting sinful behavior or by encouraging the faint-hearted, the little-souled. The counselor comforts the distressed. He strengthens struggling believers. If you have a passion for that, you may have the gift of counseling or exhortation or whatever you want to call it. Oh, how we need exhorters. We need them. Fifthly, the gift of generosity. Some say it's the gift of giving. Paul says, he who gives with liberality. The word rendered gives here is a compound word, the original. And whenever I say it's a compound word, I bring that out, not to sound nerdy or sound really smart, but to help you understand that it's intensified. Something that you don't really see in the English. One, one commentator said that this word means to be a super giver. A super giver. Somebody who gives above and beyond without compulsion. Somebody who gives above and beyond because they just want to. Because they love giving. Now, if we're going to be real, we all know as good Baptists we're supposed to give, right? Right? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but some of you still, after decades of being a Christian, might find it difficult to write that check. Uh, Things are going a little bit tough these days. I think I might hold another $50 back. Oh, man, I've been giving for so long. Can I just not do it for a minute so I can go on that vacation, buy that new truck, whatever? Many of us have had those thoughts, haven't we? But the super giver, not him. There's no reluctance at all to give sacrificially and consistently. Some of you have that gift. Don't, underrest- don't underestimate that gift. Because without resources and without money, it always makes it a little bit comfortable to talk about money, especially 
me as a preacher. But money is necessary to keep the lights on, to free up your pastors to do the work of the ministry, to labor at preaching and teaching. The money is necessary to fund the missionaries who takes the gospel across the world. Oh, so don't despise super givers. And if you're a super giver, bless you, keep doing it. Sixthly is leadership. Paul says, he who leads with diligence. Some would call this the gift of ruling or the gift of governing. Gift of ruling or governing. Now, I'll take a step back just just to reiterate what ruling or governing is not. Rulers in the church, leaders in the church, I just want you to know that I believe that doesn't mean they're dictators or presidents or kings or priests. No. In the church, there, there is no president, king, dictator. The leaders in the church, they lead with delegated authority from Christ for your benefit and God's glory. So leadership in the church should not be heavy-handed. Leadership in the church should not be oppressive. And sadly, the longer I'm a Christian, the more Christians I meet that have experienced true spiritual abuse. So if that's you, understand that that's evil. That's not what the Bible teaches. However, the Bible does teach that we need rulers. And just so you know, this is a biblical term. 1 Timothy 5.17 says the elders who rule well are to be worthy of double honor. Paul uses the same word in Romans 12, verse 8. It literally means to stand over or preside or rule. But translators use the word lead because it's softer. This gift of leading or ruling or governing is the same as the gift of administration in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 18. Here's what it involves. The leader, the ruler, the administrator, he manages, he oversees, he guides, he directs, he makes decisions. He has the ability to to organize, to mobilize, to make something happen, to cover all the details, to get people together, to get the job done. Some of you are like that. The pastor can say, hey, Bob or Joe or Becky, we need to get this done. Can you help us out? I got it. What I got to do. Bam, they come back. Done. What's next? Some people just have that initiative, that drive to figure things out, to motivate people and to organize things. I believe my wife has this gift because she's great at organizing events She's great at very sweetly and kindly getting people involved. And she just does it without me even asking. So leadership, obviously, when it comes to ruling the church, is the elder's role. But, but, but leadership can be, can be exercised in other contexts. Right? Like, like putting together a baby shower. Putting together a, a, a youth uh, ministry, or, or you name it. I think the best biblical illustration of leadership is in the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15. You guys ever read Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council? What happened? Very quickly, because I'm almost out of time. So there was an argument 
about circumcision and the Gentiles. So all the apostles, the church leaders, they gathered in Jerusalem and, and they, 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 they had the debates, they, they had the arguments, and at the end of the day, what happened? Was there a vote? <laughs> Was there a confession written? No. James stood up and said, this is my decision. No longer trouble the Gentiles. So you see, he, he stood up he took charge, he called the shot. Sometimes we need men, sometimes we need women to say, hey, we've heard everything, we've considered it, we've prayed about it or whatever, we've got to make a move. It's a gift of leadership. It's not just limited to church officers. Finally, the seventh gift is the gift of what I would call benevolence. Some say the gift of mercy. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. This is the God-given grace to show pity and compassion toward people in misery. You know, I said before, earlier in the message, that I believe I have this gift. You say, how do you know? Because I walk into a high-security federal penitentiary every day. I work among the worst of the worst. In fact, I cannot even tell you what most of these men did because it would be too R-rated for this context. Yes, in my flesh, and my self-righteousness, I think to myself, how could you do that? but then I'm convicted of the words that our master said while he was in the process of being executed. Do you remember what he said? He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. So for you and I not to have compassion for the criminal, we think more like a Pharisee than Jesus. Jesus displayed mercy, his whole ministry. He displayed mercy to the poor, the troubled, the prostitute, the downtrodden, the deprived, the sick, the imprisoned, those who are down and out. In Matthew 9.36, Jesus says, Matthew says, seeing the people, he felt compassion because they were distressed and dispirited and they were like sheep without a shepherd. Mark 2, verses 16 and 17. This is what fuels my drive to preach the gospel to inmates. Mark 2, 16. When the scribes and the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, those filthy, stinking vermin, They said to his disciples, why is he, is he eating with, with tax collectors and sinners? And here's what Jesus says. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. 
So brother, sister, if you're the one that goes into the prisons, that goes to the hospitals, that goes to the shelters, that goes to the crisis pregnancy centers, if you've adopted a child, if you want to adopt a child, you, you may have the special gift of mercy. Praise God for you. We need more benevolence in the, in the church today, don't we? We have to be careful as conservative Baptists as we fight for the truth, we preach the word boldly without apology, we express righteous indignation against the atrocities, against the unborn, and the attack and sanctity on marriage. You name it. We have to be ministers of mercy too. Jesus came to save the inmate. He came to save the mentally ill. He came to save the pregnant teenager. He came to save the orphan. Didn't he? So again, as I conclude, brothers, sisters, remember that the senior pastor, your associate pastors, your deacons, they can't do it all. So if you expect them to repent now, the Bible calls you to be a minister of the gospel, a servant for life. We've been confronted with a text that compels us to live out our faith after we have dedicated ourselves to Christ by humbly functioning in the body of Christ in an area where God has enabled you. So, before you check out and start thinking about your Dairy Queen bar, <laughs> let me ask, are you a functioning member? Are you involved in a ministry? Are you employing your gift for God's glory? Is your ministry successful? Is there fruit? Is there joy? If not, brothers and sisters, perhaps you need to own your weakness, own your uniqueness, and then own your giftedness. After you've done that, you don't need to do, get to work. And I'll end with this. As Paul said in Galatians 6, 9, do not grow weary in doing good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this very convicting text and this very clear text that lays out how we ought to live out a Christian life in service to the local church, in service to you as we exercise the gift that you've, been, that you've given us by grace. Father, we are so quick and rightly so to preach and, and, and repeat that we are saved by grace, but the gifts that you have given us are also an act of grace, so may we be good stewards. I pray for this precious church as they seek their new senior pastor. May you be with them. May they have patience. May they have great hope. May they be submissive to their leaders. And Lord, may you just keep this church in your care. Bless them. In Jesus' name, amen.